it's great to see you here on uh, this Thursday night. It's an event I've been greatly looking forward to. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you. I'll say more about you in a minute. Um, so welcome to the Effective Living Centre slash uh, Christchurch. Um, a good number of you would have been here already uh, and know this place. Uh, some of you might not know us and uh, for first time it's, it's great to see you. Uh, uh, Bob, I might get you to turn that music down if you can. The, uh, lovely as it is. Thanks, man. A few housekeeping things. Uh, there are some exit signs. Uh, I wouldn't suggest you gather under that one. That would be a bit crowded, I think. Uh, I think the best way out is through the front door. That would be my uh, guess. But having said that, there is a door at the end of that corridor where you can get out of the building, okay, in case uh, we need to evacuate. Uh, the conveniences, a polite way of saying it, the ladies are on my right, the men on the, uh, my left, and there's uh, a, table, a, a disabled toilet. Well, it's a toilet for folk who are struggling uh, down that, that, that passageway. Okay. So please feel free to use them. Uh, we're going to uh, have input from Stephanie till, and I'll be um, conversing with you in the midst of that until about 8.40. Then we'll take some questions from the floor. And at about 9 we'll break for, for some supper. So please feel free to stay. Um, tea and coffee, some red and white wine there as well and some lovely nibbles. So we'd love to uh, celebrate this launch of Stephanie's book uh, with you. Please feel free to stay. Well, it's just been a great response for people and, and we're so pleased to, to see you. I want to begin this evening by acknowledging uh, the original custodians of this land, uh, the Adelaide Plains, the Ghana people. And today also is um, Armistice Day, Remembrance Day at 11 o'clock and a day to remember those who have given their life. Also a day, I think, as uh, Stephanie said to me on the phone this afternoon, uh, to remind ourselves that war is not inevitable. And I think that's a very helpful thought to hold against or alongside of uh, our thanksgivings. <coughs> At times I think culturally, socially, we think war is inevitable and we just keep going on with it. It's, it's also a time, I think, to resist and to, uh, to think again. Well, Can hello. I, hi, Sean. Hi. And just before we start having our more formal conversation, I just want to say a few really heartfelt thank yous. I want to thank each of you for coming here this evening. It means a great deal to me. I want to really thank you, Sean, that you've made this possible. Sean and I have a, a mutual friend who will be known to some of you through this parish called Mark Burroughs. And Mark and I have worked together around our passion for poetry in the context of spirituality and particularly Rilke. So it's very nice for two of Mark's friends to be coming together for this evening. And I realize that you're coming from very different quarters of uh, Adelaide. Uh, I don't mean just geographically. So I'm so pleased to see you all. And thanks, too, to Alan and Unwin, who have made it possible for me to be here. So before we started, I just really wanted to say that I've been brought in on a tide of gratitude. Wonderful. <laughs> well, welcome to Adelaide. And... Uh, might be worth asking how long since you've been here and, and what's your experience of Adelaide? Um, I've been here only a, a, a few times but always finding it very, very positive in the sense that I've, I've got some friends here and I, I find the aesthetic of the city very lovely. So my, all my associations with the city are uh, yeah, very positive indeed. Yeah, I'm very pleased to be here. 
And you were saying just a minute ago that um, you're on about a two or three week. Yes, I am. Tour. Just going to move my chair back slightly so that I can see you, but not be entirely turned from you. Yes. <laughs> and launching this orange book here, beautifully yes. uh, designed, actually, Seeking the Sacred. Thank you. That's on sale afterwards. All the books on sale tonight will be at a 10% discount. So there's a good number of Seeking the Sacred, but also um, a selection of Stephanie's other bestsellers. So please uh, feel free to to browse and to buy. And, and uh, Stephanie will be down the front here signing books afterwards as well. Yep. So. Thank you. I think all of that sort of housekeeping is yeah. out of the way. And uh, I, I'd like to begin the discussion tonight by um, referring to a quote you begin the book with, with from Carl Jung, mm-hmm. um, who described, and I don't know how many years ago this was, maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago, a crisis in, in the Western world due, due to what he called to the desacralization of the world. And he, he, he reckoned that to be a crisis. And I suspect that's a... Um, a motivating force or a thought behind the writing of this book. Look, it was a huge, um, it was a huge catalyst for me. I, I had been thinking about this book for a very long time, but the nature of books is such that you often don't know what book you're writing until a very long way in. And if some of you think, how on earth did she have a book out about Rilke? a year ago, and now did she write Seeking the Sacred in one year? The answer is absolutely not, that the genesis of this book has been really quite a long one with some very unexpected turns. Um, That quote from Jung, which I'll read to you again in a moment, um, summarised where I was eventually going to. But before I got to that place, I was really interested and provoked in a sense that the the God debates which have become such a feature haven't they of 21st century life in in a really um, uh, in a really unexpected way but they seem to be very polarizing the the loudest voices were at either end either fundamentalist theist of you know a whole lot of stripes or fundamentalist atheist of fewer stripes but you know just as certain and I felt that there was a, a, a really significant uh, arc of opinion and experience and desire and longing and searching and seeking in between those uh, positions. And I felt very strongly initially that I wanted to affirm a vision of God that wasn't being co-opted by either camp. But as I worked on this, and I did work on it for, for a long time, that was going to be a book called The Other Face of God. Um, as I worked on it, I realized that what I was actually more interested in, and maybe more capable of writing about, was not so much um, how we create God through the human imagination and through our longing and seeking, but the process of seeking itself and how transformative that can be and how illuminating it can be of who we are, who the other is, what the world is, what life is, and God as part of that picture and for some people an essential part of that picture 
but that the focus would be on us and who we want to be and who we want to become. Um, so when I read this quote from Jung, the modern world is desacralized, and actually I think it's probably a 60 years that, since he wrote this, so I think that this process could be said to have accelerated. The modern world is desacralized, that's why it is in crisis. The modern person must rediscover a deeper source of his or her own spiritual life. Now this is really significant, I think, both because we have failed to analyze our most urgent crises, including our devastation of the planet, including how the injustices that make our overpopulation much more difficult than it needs to be, and including even the way in which we continue to take violence as a kind of normal behavior on the small scale and the large. In all of those, I think, and this is what really propelled me to write this book, I think that we have failed to see that it is a lack of a spiritual vision by which I mean the capacity to include everyone whether or not we like their views. So when Jung points us to going to a deeper place, he points us to going to a place that transcends, deeper, but transcends ideology, uh, transcends divisiveness, transcends the kind of petty prejudices that so often justify the existences, the, the, the actions that lead to people's existence being um, made small or dangerous. So I think that taking on a, a, a spiritual vision for personal change and the effect that personal change has on society is very, very timely. I, th I think Jung was right. Mm -hmm. I guess one of the problems, I think, in, in Western consciousness is the sacred is often uh, posited outside of uh, lived experience, human experience, yeah. so that somehow the divine is above and beyond. Yes. And you yes. make a comment, or someone makes a comment, you quote uh, someone in the book, the sacred, the holy, is integral to who we are. Yes. And, and, I, and I think for many who caricature religion, that's very much a new thought. Well, they still haven't come to grips with that, but somehow they feel people who might worship or take the sacred seriously are still thinking in terms of that sacredness beyond and, and, and away from. Yes. Um, I don't know if you've got any comments on that. Or that the sacred is something that we turn to only, um, you know, in moments of great celebration or great need. And of course, we do turn, we do turn towards the inspiration that we call the sacred in times of great celebration or great need. Um, you know, it was so interesting on the plane today, flying from Melbourne, there was a moment silence, which is you know, one of the cultural expressions of the sacred that we're familiar with, though that they asked for a moment's silence um, because it was Remembrance Day. However, I strongly believe and have developed this theme over many years in my writing and my ministry and so on, that the sacred is, as I said in that quote, and you quoted it, in, in, integrated within life, and that spiritual practice is the practice of living. I, I, I feel it very, very strongly that whenever we're looking at dividing, 
we are dividing ourselves from part of ourselves. Whenever we are look at, looking at uniting the, the sacred vision with our vision of all of life, we are integrating and we're coming towards a healing state of wholeness. You know, it's, it's a really significant shift, um, which is not to say we won't still have times like coming into church or listening to a piece of music or uh, walking in the, in the bush, where we pause long enough to experience the holiness that is in our lives. But that is itself an act of remembrance. It's not that the holiness has ever ceased in our lives. It's just that we forget and we just need to remember. And isn't that a marvelous thing, that it would just take a moment's remembering to bring ourselves back into the presence of the sacred, including our own soul existence. Mm -hmm. mm. <laughs> we don't have to be pious, in other words. We don't have to take a pious pause. <coughs> Which is a great yeah. relief. It's uh, a great relief. It's a great relief. Yes. Um, the first chapter in the book is on reverence. Yes. Um, and I immediately think of the word respect, um, but it doesn't really it doesn't really capture the notion of reverence. Um, what, what does it mean to be reverent, um, to revere? I think it wakens up the human imagination to the great gifts of awe and wonder. Uh -huh. You know, life is a miracle. It is an astonishing miracle. And yet we can be so hooked into patterns of thinking that focus very deeply and sometimes almost entirely on insufficiency on what isn't present, what is wrong, what, what we can complain about, instead of being able to be present to what is. What is is generally pretty amazing. And again, if I can use this word, it is very healing. Um, let me read to you um, a few words. It, would that be all right Please. if I read a few words? From the very beginning of the book, um, which perhaps gives you some sense of what I mean by reverence. And also, I say that the opposite of reverence is not irreverence. I think irreverence is a marvellous quality. Um, I think the opposite of reverence is cynicism uh -huh. or, you know, a kind of bitterness or sourness. Irreverence is a marvellous face of reverence in my view, you know. <laughs> really. Um, but I'm not addressing that right here. I'm just saying something else about the sacred which I, I think might give you a, a little bit of weaving uh, as to what I'm doing here. I say, our search for the sacred may be as individual as our fingerprints. And um, when I wrote that, I was really writing it underneath that, a little protest that there's one recipe in order to find the sacred. Because actually, there is not. There's not one recipe. Uh, I mean, there are some things that I come out and say are extraordinarily important, like doing no harm, and we're going to talk about that, I know. Mm -hmm. But uh, it could be as individual as our fingerprints. Yet it connects us effortlessly to all living beings. It is the sacred that connects us. It is the sacred that reminds us that we are part 
of a whole that we cannot even conceive with the miracle of the human mind. Yeah. Isn't that a marvelous thing? I find that very exciting. It lets us discover what is most treasured and transformative in human existence. And you know, you know, and I know, and Sean knows, that sometimes we discover that in the midst of joy. And sometimes we discover it in the anguish of sorrow. And one of the places that we learn this best is in the reading of the Psalms. You know, you can go from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then you can go to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, so we can find this in, in, the, in the cradle of so many experiences. Okay, back to my book. It lets us see existence itself as entirely precious. Now this is a huge thing. If we truly valued existence as precious, that in itself would be utterly transformative. That in itself would bring us to a place where we could not willingly cause harm to others. We will, of course, through our carelessness, but we would not willingly. And we would not, in the name of religion or any other ideology, believe that we could justify harm on a gross basis, either to a race, an individual, a nation, um, a people. Yeah? Because, I say here in my book, what we regard as precious, we will naturally protect. Isn't it so? From the sacred, we may learn enough to keep one another safe. We may learn enough to keep ourselves safe. Seeking the sacred does not distance us from the real. It defines the real. And I feel very stubborn about that. You know, I feel very stubborn that it's... Uh, that we are entitled to say the sacred is the real because it includes what we can also touch, feel, and measure. Yeah. Touching the sacred through and within our everyday experiences, we come to a new sense of who and what we are. I see the value of your existence. I see myself with new gratitude and respect. We become freer to live from the inside out. I was going to say, it seems to be a major part of your book is seeing yourself anew. Yes, seeing yourself anew in order that you can truly appreciate this gift of life and not just complain about it or wish it that it were other. That makes the sorrows that are part of life not always easier to bear, but somewhat part of a bigger picture. Yeah? And it also truly transforms the ways in which we interpret other people's behaviours towards us. And it truly tra transforms the ways in which we are prepared and willing to behave towards other people. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you know I was very inspired um, by, the, um, by the quote from George Fox, the founding Quaker George Fox, walk cheerfully on this earth, answering that of God in everyone. 
And I write a lot about my Quaker experiences in this book because they've been highly formative for me. I write a lot about my own spiritual seeking in this book. But I love the unconditionality of that. Mm. I love the unconditionality of that quote so much because we are either answering that of God, which you could describe also as Buddha nature or the soul or spirit. We're answering that of God in everyone or in no one. I mean, I don't have any notion that there's a God who dwells in some form, in some but not others, mm -hmm. on the contrary. Mm -hmm. So the clarity of that was very, very formative mm -hmm. for me in my own evolution. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very formative in this book. I, and I hope, I hope it's in the deepest sense of this word, encouraging, opening of the heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, a friend recently said to me, uh, so far as a disposition like reverence is concerned, he actually said, disposition is all we have. Which is really worth thinking about. It's we very much worth thinking about because the, from, the, from the well of the disposition, yes. we pull up the bucket sure. of thought and action. Um, disposition could also be described as inspiration or motivation, but disposition, am I disposed yes. to see that of God yes. in you, Sean? Yes. You know? Yeah. Are you disposed to see that of God? Even though you think I'm, you know, whatever, I'm irritating, or I just cut in front of you, or I, in, my, in my flashy car, or whatever it is, you know, I've interrupted and inconvenienced you. Mm -hmm. Are you still disposed yes. to see that of God in me? Yeah, it's... You know, Sort of like a, somehow an openness worth fighting for. It's really... Um, yes, it is. Mm. It is. It is, and it needs to be a disposition to interrupt and, um, and challenge some of our habits of mind, mm -hmm. which would separate us from others mm -hmm. and keep us lonely. Yes. From God. Yes, alienated somehow. Mm. Um, it's really taken by Stephanie's second chapter of the book. It's, it's on identity. Uh, it's a very generous sharing of your own story in that, that particular chapter. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, and it's beautifully woven in with other people's stories as well, but you keep returning uh, to your own evolving story mm -hmm. of identity. Mm. Um, and, and I think there's this great sense of return, um, which is a very platonic ideal, but it's... it's what are you returning to? Can you... Can you in terms of identity and, and selfhood and yeah. who you are to other people? Well, you know, it's so interesting, isn't it, that we have to have um, analogies or, or pictures that uh, come from the manifest world. You know, so in a sense, it's really, you go through the seasons of changes and not all of those seasons of changes are welcome. And some of the seasons of changes that we dwell in seem to go for a mighty long time, at least in my experience. Um, and we don't always know where they're carrying us or even that they are carrying us. Sometimes we just feel we're you know, walking across a desert for far longer than 40 days and, and 40 nights. And yet looking back, and, you know, that is one of the great gifts, isn't it, of getting older, that you have a longer path to look back on, you know. 
rather rich. Um, so looking back, you can really see how one thing allowed another. So in terms of our own identity, and when you read this section, I, I very, very much hope that it's written in a way that's spacious enough to invite you in to reflect on what you identify with most closely. What is your most fundamental story? What is your most shaping story about who you are and how you should live and why you're here and what the meaning of your life is? You know, which don't need to be daunting questions. They can be very affirming and reassuring questions to consider. Um, but when you look back and you see how one thing allows another, in my own journey, I certainly see that some of the experiences that I had of moving from place to place, and even as a little girl, having the most unusual experience for that time and place, of first of all being a Protestant and then becoming a Catholic as a little girl um, because of changes in my family, and then moving away from Christianity, um, dwelling with Eastern teachings for a long time, and then coming back into Christianity through 20 years of association with the, uh, with the Quakers, with the Religious Society of Friends, and during that period, re-establishing myself also in a relationship with Catholicism that really worked for me. I hope it worked for them too, <laughs> uh, that, re that really worked for me. And in all of that, and this is where I'm coming back to Sean's questions, and I've, I've illustrated by going round and round, because this is what we do when we think about these questions. We go round and round. In all of that, there is the consistency of feeling through the moments of God's fidelity in all kinds of situations, in all kinds of places, in all kinds of moments, both emotional and intellectual and social and so on, with all kinds of people, with all kinds of religious ideologies and religions, that there is this sense of coming home to one's own soul life. Um, where have I got the William Wordsworth quote? Let me just read it to you because I, I just have to find it. Um, this is the home that we have come from, I think. Uh, somebody asked me on the radio. I've been doing a bit of radio. Somebody said to me on radio, oh, I thought it was a rather brave question, do you believe in the afterlife? <laughs> and I felt that they really, really wanted to know that it was a very sincere question. And I said... I believe in the eternal life mm -hmm. that isn't afterwards right. and wasn't before. Right. Yes, it's yes, it's ongoing. And, and this is, of course, our home. This is, our, this is the life of our soul. And, and what can our soul do but um, express itself through our imagination and through our actions? Actually, instead of reading from... Um, Wordsworth, I, I should say this poem to you from Rilke. Mm -hmm. Is that all right? It's one of his early poems from the Book of Hours. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. You, 
sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Make everything happen, beauty and terror. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. You know, that's, that was the poem of a young man. But it's a wonderful poem because it's about embodying the soul for as long as we're in this body. So let me just share the little bit of Wordsworth with you too because it's so lovely. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. He means our physical birth. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. Not in entire forgetfulness, not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. Mm -hmm. yeah. So however you embrace or, or don't this word, whether for you it is the cosmic Buddha, whether for you it is the divine mystery, Nevertheless, there is a sense that the sacred calls us towards, that we yearn towards, that we know, that we know constantly in some part of our being. And there are moments in which we know ourselves to be at home. And they are utterly independent of one particular part or one particular teaching. Mm -hmm. Each path, each teaching has something to give in bringing us home to who we truly are in order that we can live abundantly. Mm -hmm. I think. I think. It is a revolutionary thought, uh, is it not? Uh, and I, I speak out of, a, I guess, of a Christian framework. Yes. Um, primarily. Where again, as I said earlier on, there is often this divide between the divine and, and the soul. Um, or a cringe factor almost, or this is a cowering factor. And what you're saying though is somehow there is a dance here. There, there is a, a mutuality, there is a union oh, yes. going on here. Relationship. Relationship, yes. 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 Actually, Sean, you've written about Christian self-identity. I'd like you to reflect <laughs> on that in this context. Mm. You know, what... What would it mean to those of you who've had a Christian upbringing or who are, um, you know, who've been affected by the, the cultural norms of a Christian self-identity? So when you listen to Sean's answer, I hope I've put him on an interesting spot, mm. uh, you know, what would Christian self-identity mean? It's a, isn't it a fascinating question? Thankfully, I did have some warning of this question, so I, can, I did see some thinking. Um, one of the really influential books in, in Western Christian thought uh, is The Imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis. And there is a strong emphasis within a Christian party to follow the example. You're one or two steps behind. And, and I think it has veracity. 
but, but when you consider foundational aspects of the Christian practice, and particularly in a liturgic sense when you've got baptism, Eucharist or communion, the emphasis there is not simply about following an example, it's actually about participation, it's actually about a spiritual union, a commingling, if I can use a word like that. So that identity is, well, from my perspective, more of a mystical, spirited perspective, is exactly what you're saying. It's, it's somehow it's a coming home to that innate, created being that we are, which yes. is sacred in itself. It's a sense of meeting the divine within your own experience yes, and being changed because of that. It's this, this strange mixture between the imminence and transcendence. Yes. But it's not a cringe factor. It's actually this delightful sense of union. So, you know, in, in, a, in a rite like baptism, we are plunged into this reality. We, we are, yeah. in, 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 in a ritual like the communion or Eucharist, we partake. Yeah. We eat and we drink. So it's visceral. It's bodily, you know. It's, and it's deeply embedded and entwined within us. So Christian identity for me is, it's, well, it's, it's what St. Paul talked about being in Christ, in Christa. Um, yeah. It's not simply about following two or three steps, three steps behind in some sort of slavish obedience. It's actually being found to be in the midst of, which is just mind-blowing. I think that is um, yeah. how I describe it. And, and it's deeply personal. So it's Sean, it's uh, Stephanie, it's, it's the gathered community. Mm-hmm. Interrelated, um, entwined, um, commingled. So there's no separations it's actually a plunging into love, really. And I address in this book some of the difficulties we would have in thinking about Sean's point of view. I was so happy to be coming this evening because I had a sense that you know, Sean had thought very deeply about these things because what so often gets in the way... I mean, one of the quotes that I have in this book, I, I was quite surprised myself um, how many quotes I have from Paul. Hmm. From Paul's too. letters. Yeah. Um, I, I have to tell you, first of all, that th- there are two aspects of writing books that I completely love, and neither of them is writing. Um, <laughs> one is uh, doing interviews and, and talking with people about the subject matter and gathering stories, and I have some marvellous stories in this book, and I know there are one or two people present who have contributed in that way. And I am so grateful, and so will you be when you read it. Um, The other thing that I absolutely love, and I've been doing this for years, even from from the very earliest when I started doing this kind of writing with intimacy and solitude, and certainly flowering it in um, uh, forgiveness and other acts of love, is finding amazing quotes. And I really feel like I'm just so helped by the angels in this because sometimes I just find the most astonishing things, you know, and I'm thrilled for days. Um, But I'm also sometimes surprised by what seems to work so well. But one of the quotes that comes very much to the, the heart of this question of identity is one from Paul which says, do everything, do everything in such a way that the divine can be revealed through it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about that and Rilke's poem, Embody Me. Now, what often gets in the way, and truly I do address this, are our own highly cultivated feelings of <coughs> s- insufficiency and our highly cultivated feelings even of, that's too hard, it's all right for 
it's all right for Sean. He's a, he's a reverend. Um, or, or, ir, or an irreverent, I hope. That's right. Uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's a little bit of a self-deception or even an absence of self-love, even an absence of appreciation of our own inherited gifts, which we didn't even have to deserve, um, can take us away from that place of appreciation and growth. I think that's a place of true humility. Mm -hmm. And I think humility is a grace. I think humility is a, is a wonderful leavener of life. And that we can think about that as, a, as part of our own renewal. We don't have to be too proud to open up to what the gifts are that we could cultivate, be thankful for, and even express. So what we're talking about here in shifting the identity of who we are really does matter. It matters because it strengthens us in order to deal with the sorrows of life as well as, the, as, well as embracing more full-heartedly the joys. But it also matters because without shifting our own identity, we will never see other people with more appreciation and respect and c compassion and kindness, even when we think their views are utterly repulsive and repugnant, which they may well be. Because you, you tell a story in the book about um, your ordination, uh, I think in New York yes. City, uh, where you had a, maybe a year-long struggle with a particular person. I did. Who was to uh, finally, I think, lay hands on you or yes, ordain you? and was one of the three people so ordained So maybe you could retell that story if it's, oh, if it's appropriate uh, yeah. in terms of the moment of grace that came to you? It was a moment of grace, and it wouldn't have come to me if I hadn't found this person so utterly difficult. How it was was that I, I went to New York the year before I was ordained as an interfaith minister. Some of you know that I'm an interfaith minister and that I give my services in Sydney at Pitt Street Uniting Church, which is a very inner city kind of a church, which is marvellous because you know, people can come from all kinds of places and backgrounds and so on and really feel at home. And it's a uniting church with a long history of inclusiveness, a very explicit history of inclusiveness. So I'm you know, enormously grateful that I can um, give my services there. Um, but you know, that was all in the future. At this time, I was still studying for interfaith ministry in interfaith ministry. And the year before my own ordination... I went for a retreat, and we had a marvelous retreat. And then I wanted to stay on in New York and attend the ordination of the class that was ahead of me, which I did do. And someone who was quite senior in the um, seminary got up at the ordination um, service, which, which was at St. John the Divine in um, Manhattan, which is a, a very special church. I can see my friend Jane nodding. Um, and... Uh, this was in 2004, so I guess that the Iraq situation was tragic. And he basically gave a, a, a little polemic about how well our boys and girls were doing and so on and so on. I don't even need to describe it to you. I was so upset. I was so upset that someone who was speaking in the name of interfaith 
could have given such a nationalistic, militaristic talk on such an inappropriate occasion. Afterwards, I went up and spoke to this man, sharing my views, sharing my Quaker history, sharing my utter commitment to peacemaking, of which I believe my interfaith ministry is a reflection. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and he was very, very angry. He was entitled to his views. I was entitled to mine. But the twain were not to meet. So going there a year later for my own ordination, I knew that he would be one of the three people you know, giving the sacrament of ordination, which I regarded as a sacrament. I'm very Catholic in many ways, I have to tell you that. <laughs> very Catholic. Um, and uh, anyway, the most extraordinary thing happened, which I could not have predicted, uh, which I could not even have formulated as, as a desire, which was that in the moment of his putting his hands on me, I simply experienced him as a vessel of God. And that his opinions, my opinions, will come, will go like the leaves of the ground. It was so liberating. And you know, if I just thought he was a jolly good fellow and loved all his views and thought he was Francis of Assisi, come again, um, I, I would never have had that experience of knowing that really it is possible. We can and sometimes we must open ourselves to the transcendence of your opinion and mine mm -hmm. was a, a ble it was a true blessing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, do no harm. I'm skipping over the chapter on love, yes, but yes, I think in course. one sense we're probably yeah, yeah. We won't we won't really skip over the chapter on love. No, love is actually sort of in yeah, the yeah, air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love is in the air. <laughs> Sean's going to sing for you in a moment. No, it's not. It's <laughs> <laughs> not. Um, do no harm. Uh, yeah. And and particularly the uh, the rabbi, I think, who made this quite well known. This quote. Um, have I got this wrong? Uh, I'm going to stumble now. But th th wasn't there a Jewish rabbi who you quote with this "do no harm"? Oh well, I quote quite a lot of people mm -hmm. around this because. Well, what is let, what let, is hateful to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do yeah, not. You, yes, yes, it, yes. Rabbi Hillel, the yeah, Pharisee. That's right. That's right yes, yeah. yes. To sum up, to sum up the Torah, he mm -hmm. was asked to sum up the Torah while standing on one leg. <laughs> so he said, "Do no harm. Do good. Go home and study this. That is the Torah." In fact, that is also the Christian teaching. Do no harm. Do good. Mm -hmm. The reason that I... Uh, oh, let me just read to you, first of all, from Martin Luther King. This very much inspired me. I refuse to accept the view that humankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright, bright daybreak of peace and brother and sisterhood can never become a reality. Hmm. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. Mm -hmm. right. I also believe that. I believe that unconditional love will have the final word, if not in this life, then in the eternal. Mm -hmm. But 
you know, what are we here to do? But to play our little part in, in making our love less conditional, all right. However, I'm also very aware through my many years of working with people individually and big groups and all sorts of situations, that when it comes to the marvelous golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you. See yourself in others and others in yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Think of everyone as your neighbor. I know that when it comes to that, many of us would draw back. Many of us would draw back and justify why Sean would make a lovely neighbor, but So I also wanted to spend quite a lot of time in this book about seeking the sacred, thinking about what is sometimes called the silver rule, mm -hmm. which is do no harm. Do no harm. Perhaps we can't always do good. But if we were to take this one bit seriously, that harm would always stop with me, that I will not meet hate with hate, as the Dhammapada teaches us, but that I will meet it either with detachment or compassion or a refusal to retaliate. If we were to do that, if we were to cease justifying meeting harm with harm, we would have a social revolution. It, it, it occurs to me, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, you no, know, you haven't interrupted at all. It, it occurs to me, if, if it's purely based on willpower, though, we're going to struggle. So yeah, it isn't. So what is it based on? Uh, though will, will, or not so much will, though will plays a lovely part here. An awareness that we have a choice. An awareness that we have a choice that as conscious beings, that's the great gift, isn't it, of human, human experience, of, of being coming into this life as a human being. We have consciousness and we have conscience. We can make choices. I wrote a lot about this in Forgiveness and Other Acts of Love, that in the section on restraint, that we do, in fact, have a moment's choice. Mm -hmm. And lots of people who behave appallingly in some situations will behave in quite a civilized manner in others. So don't tell me they have no choices. They have choices. Yeah? And as we go through life, we are more and more empowered and we're more and more liberated from our dreary habits when we recognize that we have choices. So in doing no harm, one of the things we do is gather up the, 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 the multitude of our psychological experiences, particularly the grave ones, and we learn something from them, and we learn that we have some choices. Yeah? We see the patterns and we recognize the situations which will be particularly stressful for us, and so on and so on, and we recognize that we have some choices. But I've written this chapter in a book which says, Seeking the Sacred. Mm. So the context here is also really, really important. Even 
if you are totally unable to accept that your life is sacred or anyone else's is, I am nevertheless inviting you to experiment with a vision of life that is more inclusive. Mm -hmm. I'm inviting you to experiment with the fact that you have a tremendous amount of power to affect other people more or less positively. Mm -hmm. And that the empowerment that we all sort of long for, uh, along with um, you know, um, self-affirmation and self-acceptance, truly arises from this place, knowing that we can become good company for others. We often talk about seeking good company. We can think hard about being good company too, can't we? Yeah. We can, we can, we can take upon ourselves the fascinating challenge of living in such a way that the effect of our actions is positive for other people. All of that is part of do no harm within a seeking context that doesn't have to be defined by a particular belief or even a particular religiosity. On the contrary, sometimes a particular religiosity may even get in the way. Um, it, I, I think I use the word freeing quite often in this book. I want to free us from some of the restrictions that we put on ourselves um, about how we'll behave, what we, what we will think about. You know, right at the very beginning of this book, here's Paul again. All that is true, all that is worthy of reverence, all that is holy and good, all that is lovely to look at and beautiful to hear, all that has virtue and deserves praise, let this be the content of your thinking. In Choosing Happiness, I, when I was researching Choosing Happiness, I'll just tell you this tiny anecdote before we go to Sean's next question. Um, doing my research for that book, I discovered that some poor person had measured the number of thoughts we have in a day. Oh, my God. <laughs> I suspect it was a PhD student. And, scary. Uh, very scary. And it was something like 50,000, or might even be 56,000, or might be 49,000, but anyway, it's around that number. And I, when I'm talking about happiness or a more open, um, a, a greater openness to what is possible, I say sometimes on a bad day we have the same thought 50,000 times. <laughs> and very few of those thoughts are taking it us in the direction of the possible. Very few of those thoughts would be taking us in the direction of the opening. Very few of those thoughts might be taking us in the direction of what's needed here. You know. What's needed here. This is a this is a a question that we really can afford to ask. What's needed here? What would be comforting? What would be uplifting? What would even be transformative? Yeah. I'm hesitant to ask it because, again, it's coming out of the Christian tradition, but I think it applies to any spiritual or religious tradition, and that is to pray for one's enemy. Yes. Very important. It's very hard, though. 
I mean, no, I don't agree okay, with you at all. I think it's very freeing. Mm -hmm. I want to use that word again. Mm -hmm. There's a great, again, I'm going to quote from the Buddhist tradition. There's a very profound sutra called the Metta Sutra in which you first pray for yourself, may I be well and happy. Meaning wellness and happiness in the largest sense. So you could pray it with your final breath. You could be very well in this context to your final breath. Then you bring to mind the people that you are dependent upon, you know, for your happiness, the people that you love, the people that you find easy to appreciate, and you pray for them. May they be well and happy. And you bring them to mind, and you generate the energy of good wishes. This is what prayer is, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's the generation of good wishes. Mm -hmm. Then you bring to mind people that you have difficulty with. And then you bring to mind people you abhor. And in discovering that you can wish that they would be well and happy, because it is so likely that if they were well and happy, they would not be acting in the ways that cause you such horror. Yeah? So your prayer could be even more passionate more profound. May they know wellness and happiness. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And in doing that, you embrace them as part of your human family. They are part of your human family. In the same way that the aspects of your own individual personality that you don't like so much is part of your human existence. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you, for example, you do the same ghastly thing that you've been doing for the last 40 years, and you do it again, despite having read the book. <laughs> you think, well, what good was that? Is there a money-back guarantee? You think to yourself. Instead of just having a little bit of compassion for that moment in which you not only did something that you've done 40,000 times, but that you saw it differently. Some compassion will help you move on from that habit, much more than beating yourself up and telling yourself that you know you're condemned to do it for the rest of your days. You know, there's so much we could learn about plain old kindness uh -huh. from a spiritual vision. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean, I think, I'd love to know what you think, it, I don't think it means that we have to you know, throw ourselves into the company of people whose views we abhor or who cause us a great deal of distress. And we certainly don't need to lie down like a doormat for other people to walk all over. I'm not saying that at all. I mean, the marvelous thing about prayer is that you can pray from a distance. And if you believe in prayer, well, isn't it true? It's true. But the distance is actually very intimate. It's actually very close. And it's God's distance. And it's God's time, and it's God's timelessness, and it's God's there is no distance. Yeah? So I think that it's not hard. Okay. Thank I you. think it's That's wonderful. It's very encouraging. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I, I know uh, time's getting on, but you, you said some pretty uh, strong things about war yes, in your book. Yes, very. And quoted some people who've done some interesting work so far as um, young men or young women are concerned, as soldiers and yeah. the excitement of war and so forth, mm -hmm. and, and yet the grave results of these mm -hmm. 
attitudes and behaviours. Can, can you say something about that? Well, I'll just say something brief about that um, because it is something to really read and re reflect upon. But I think one of the longest shadows that the Christian church, of which I'm still a part, that one of the longest shadows is its justification of war and its willingness to go to war, either even between denominations. I mean, I, I write about that in what I hope is quite a funny way, you know, the dreadful, ignorant things that Catholics used to say about Protestants and Protestants would say about Catholics in my childhood. And, you know, when did the, when did the, the troubles in Northern Ireland come to an end? Three or four years ago? You know, so what the Christian church, which is perhaps the body of religious thinking that we're mostly most familiar with, its justifications of war are, I think, its greatest sorrow, its justifications of violence. And I argue in this book that where religion justifies violence, it utterly ceases to be religious, mm -hmm. and that um, where spirituality, on the other hand, is all self-focused, it's not much worth an ounce of gold. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm, I also offer a critique of spirituality, which can be very self-focused. Sure. Yeah. I, I, do feel, I do feel passionate. One of the absolutely consistent themes of my adult life has been my engagement with the... Um, peacemaking efforts um, and perhaps just the one thing I'd like to say on that is that it's anything but passive it takes a great deal of fortitude and it takes a great deal of stubbornness and it takes a great deal of constant re-analyzing to keep presenting a case against the normalization of violence it is so normalized in our thinking. And let me just say that over the many years that I've been doing um, journalism, uh, including my column that some of you may have read in the, in the uh, supplement to The Age and the um, Sydney Morning Herald, but also when I've written opinion pieces, one of the topics that I get most abusive letters about is when I write saying war is not inevitable. This deeply offends some people. Deeply. Deeply. So I, I think that's very interesting. It's a subject around which passion flares. Yeah. Yes. Thank you very much. I just would like to read you something from Mahatma Gandhi. On my website, by the way, I have several, like, liturgies almost for, for peacemaking, you know, where I really say, you know, when we silence our criticism, I make peace, I give you peace. When I encourage you, I give you peace. When I accept you as you are, I give you peace. When I'm willing to accept difference, I give you peace. You know, we really need to think about this in much, much more subtle ways than we normally do. And here's something rather similar from our great brother, Mahatma Gandhi. I offer you peace. I offer you love. I offer you friendship. 
I see your beauty. I hear your need. I feel your feelings. My wisdom flows from the highest source. I greet that source in you. Uh -huh. And Gandhi would have put his hands together and said, I greet that source in you. Let us work together for unity and love. That is, we can't do it by ourselves. We can't do seeking the sacred by ourselves. We lift one another up. We support one another. We engage with one another. This is a passionately collective enterprise. One of the things I'm, I'm aware of and painfully at times is uh, the historical, the social context we live in and the, the, the predominant secularism um, and a humanist secularism, which again, I'm not saying that in a, in a pejorative way. It's just simply there and it's part of who I am too, I think. But even talking about the sacred in such a context, then quickly the word God comes into play there's, particularly for Australians, I think at times, there's this natural sort of aversion. You know, what, what are you going to impose on me? Mm. What do you want from me? Um, what more do you want from me? You know, life's hard enough as it is. Um, mm -hmm. Suppose it made life easier. Yeah, maybe it made life easier. Yeah. Easing. Yeah. Making us more spacious. Making us easier to be with. Easing some of our difficulties. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. Isn't that possible? So you're saying it has a practical sort of application here? Do you? I'm saying it has a lived application. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it shouldn't make our lives harder. Mm -hmm. Our lives are hard enough. We're fragile creatures. It could possibly make our lives more beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Isn't that what you seek in your liturgies, Sean? Yeah to make our appreciation of life more beautiful, even in the face of and the presence of sorrow. Yeah? Yeah. It's, it's not a denial of sorrow. It's not a denial of mortality, which is our greatest sorrow. It's, it's, a, a, it's an appreciation of the truth of human existence mm -hmm. in all its variety. It's a spaciousness, isn't it, to, yes. to make the yeah. connections. And yeah. I just a reminder of that Gandhi quote about the, the otherness within you or that, that presence within you. And somehow yeah. being able to see that. Um, the, the last chapter is on transformation. It's a word that's used a lot in religious communities these days, um, almost in preference to the word conversion. But I think the way you would um, define transformation is incremental, uh, cyclical, you know, life stages. Am I accurate with these these sort of descriptions? Or, um, and and it's based on this seeing oneself in a different light, and and perceiving a different reality and a different and a greater possibility or hopefulness. Is that am I sort of somewhere near the mark there? I think I think so. I'm. I think the most crucial thing about transformation is that it is a process. It's life, actually. Mm -hmm. Whether you want to be transforming or not, you are. I mean, we are dynamic creatures. We are either expanding or we're contracting. Um, you are transforming. Do you want some choice about the direction in which your life is 
is heading? Do you want some choice about how and where you're setting your compass? Do you want some choice about what you're attending to? Do you want some choice about uh, whether or not you are uplifting? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think those are questions that go to the heart of transformation. Mm -hmm. um, Mark Burroughs, interestingly, uses the word conversion very, in a very similar way to the way that I'm using transformation. We traditionally think of conversion as um, give up the old ideas that you had, take on my ideas, uh, don't, don't go on being a Protestant anymore, do come and be a Catholic, or why don't you take up interfaith as your one and only path? Or, you know, we often think it's like a body of ideas that we have to shed. On the contrary, I think it's an accumulation of our experiences mm -hmm. and of our reflections upon our experiences that transforms us along with this ineffable quality that we call grace. Mm -hmm. You know, grace is also working for us. Uh, in, in, in a Christian framework, I, I can say to you very freely, I believe the Holy Spirit is working for us constantly. Yeah? And that, that is part of our transformation. That that is part of our constant being born being reborn to a new day, being reborn to a, a more generous and forgiving vision, being reborn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we go on needing it. We don't get transformed once and for all. I, I mean, maybe there are great souls who've been enlightened. Certainly that was Paul's experience, you know. He was enlightened. But for most of us, enlightenment, which is seeing the light, which is about lighting up something that was formerly disowned or in the shadows, yeah? Mm -hmm. That's what enlightenment really means, owning more of who we are, um, recognizing our own sense of um, centrality of the self, of agency, responsibility. Um, for most of us, those processes are gradual. And they are inconsistent, mm -hmm. you know. And it doesn't mean that every day from then on will be a glorious day. However, even the difficult days may be experienced a little bit differently. You may experience your resources a little bit differently because you see them a little bit differently, because you are less afraid to call on others to call on God, to call on your own experiences, to call on your inner wisdom, to call on your inner wise being, however you frame that. Um, you know, I'm sitting in front of you and I've been doing this kind of work in a very active way for nearly 30 years. I came to Australia in 1983 and that was the year my first child was born, so I'm always able to remember exactly how long I'd been in Australia. And his name was Gabriel, which is a, a beautiful name for a new unfolding, both of being a parent and of being a writer. And I'd been a publisher for years before that. And somewhere in there, I also did my training in psychotherapy, which then also went on. So for a very long time, I've been thinking about these questions, you know, wrestling with them like, like Jacob. You know, it's a wrestle. It's not always easy. 
It's not always comforting. It doesn't mean you come up with the right answer all of the time. It doesn't mean you don't have your very difficult moments. Nevertheless, what knocks you off your perch becomes less trivial. Yeah? You, you, you're knocked around. You're less knocked around by the things that you really are going to have forgotten a week from now, a month from now, or even a year from now. And when it comes to the really big things that matter, you do know that there are resources that you have which you could never have identified as a young person. I mean, if as a young person, you know, moderately, you know, clever doing moderately well and so on and so on, somebody had said, you know, in, in 20 or 30 years' time, you would be teaching on some of the biggest topics that humankind could yes. I would have laughed irreverently <laughs> and a actually totally with total disbelief. You know, come, you have to come to it bit by bit and you have to really learn the meaning of humility. You have to, because you could not come to it with the ego. You have to come to it with compassion for the ego and its extreme <coughs> insecurities. Yeah? Mm. You, ha you have to come with compassion for those insecurities mm -hmm. that would tell you, how could you? <laughs> how dare you? You yes. know? Especially you who've fallen down many times. Zen saying, always a good Zen saying, fall down seven times, rise up eight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. I think we're just about done for time for this, um, for this segment. Um, we've got some time for questions, but I'm just wondering if there's anything that you can think of that you want to round it off with or... I feel that it's been such a privilege to talk about deep ideas of this book with you, Sean, but also with you, that you, with your attention, have really allowed me to be truthful to this book. So thank you very much for mm. that. Yeah. Um, you know, we are very trained to talk about things in abstractions. Mm -hmm. We're very trained to talk about things in ways that can be intellectually very exciting. But transformation doesn't occur at the level of intellect only. The intellect is simply a vehicle for it. Transformation occurs, and the Eastern teachings tell us this so profoundly, it occurs in the place, the temple of the heart. We transform in the place of the heart. We have to believe and feel that this is worthwhile and that we care enough to take it on, mm -hmm. joyfully. Mm -hmm. Would you please thank Stephanie Dowry. As I said, we've got about uh, 15 minutes or so to take any questions from the floor. And I think, Bob, have you got the, uh, the rotary microphone? Um, if anyone would like to put a hand up, one of the practices we like to follow here is sort of um, have a gender equality here. So I think there's probably far more females than males here anyway, but uh, maybe that the equality needs to be for the men tonight. But um, 
often the men are the ones who want to ask the question. That's what I'm saying. But if, if we can go from man to woman, that'd be good. Or woman to man. I know there are a lot Hold of poets in this, in this parish too. So we've probably got some poets present. Uh, we have. Very good. How do you define God, Stephanie? Oh, I hope I don't. <laughs> we'll see. say that war is not inevitable. Mm -hmm. uh, I spent 27 years in the Air Force mm -hmm. and our government sent me off to three wars. Yes. Uh, the alternative to war, it seems to me, mm -hmm. is to lie down yeah. and allow aggression to win. What do you say? Well, I say the opposite. I say that if we meet aggression with aggression, we accelerate aggression and that we have to find another way to meet the profound human problems and social difficulties that we have other than killing people because we disagree with them. Yeah. I, I, I really do feel this very, very strongly. My, my father was also a soldier. My brother, my, I have a half-brother, Joseph, who's been in the New Zealand Army all his life. You know, I've, I've had heartfelt, I mean no disrespect, I feel no disrespect to those, but I also believe that it is incredibly important that other voices are heard, that there are other ways to solve human problems, and that war begets war, and that in the name, and, and, and war begets other forms of violence. We know, for example, I, my friend Jane Sloan is here, who's recently come back to Adelaide, having been the Executive Director for International Women's Development Agency. And we know that wherever there is war, the suffering for women and children through violence, through the violence of displacement, through the violences of starvation, through the violence of rape as an as a activity of war, is beyond description. We have to say harm needs to stop. So thank you for asking this question. Stephanie, I don't, I don't have a question. Can you hear? I can. I don't have a question, but I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart that you have touched, touched my soul in a very beautiful way tonight. Thank you, so thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, just one question. Do you have any <coughs> um, ideas on how we might avoid war, apart from going to war? I, I mean, yes, if somebody, I do. If I have somebody a comes in, invades your country. Yeah. But we're going to war when our country is not invaded, when other solutions have not even been tried. This is. Uh, this is part of such a big conversation, and I have this big conversation in this book. Um, 
even if you, even if we just move our minds away from war for a moment, which is kind of an overwhelming concept, if we just move our minds to how entitled many people feel if someone lifts a fist against them just to use the fisticuffs back, or if someone speaks violently to another per one person in the office, how justified they feel to meet that with even louder, uh, even a louder voice. There are all sorts of ways in which we just assume that this is justified. And in this book, I'm asking us to consider. Mm -hmm. I'm asking us simply to consider whether it is always justified, whether it is ever justified, and in fact, how helpful is it? How helpful is it? Often it is profoundly unhelpful. And I think if yeah. I could just add, yes, uh, please not, do, not so much sure. to the debate or the argument, is how often the divine or the sacred is brought into the justification yes. or the legitimation yes. of, of, the, of the violence. Yeah. Um, so the deity yeah. is, is this warlike thing. Yes, um, that's right. Which I think is the antithesis toward what you're saying the best of each spiritual tradition is. That's right. Um, I am saying that. I'm saying the very notion that you could worship a god who takes sides is deeply disturbing. <laughs> Stephanie, um, I would be interested in what you might say about health and illness and where that fits in because I've heard so much about health and healing um, and sickness and illness and so I'm interested in what you have to say about that because there's a, a lot of almost mystification around it, almost blaming people who get oh. sick or oh, right, right, ill right. or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. as somehow. Yeah, great, great, very, very good question. and. You know, I do a lot of work with Breast Cancer Network Australia. I'm, I speak at forums all over, the, um, all over the country. And for these two years, this year and next year, we're doing these forums mainly in regional Australia, which is, you know, a, a wonderful thing because um, facilities are not equally dispersed around our country. And I'm very aware that there's a kind of... Um, an idea which has really taken hold in some circles that we bring illness upon ourselves and that we, when we are ill we need to burrow into it and discover what the cause, you know, how we caused it. And I, I find this really banal and offensive. And I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, because common sense tells us that all illness, and we're talking about serious illness now, I assume, Oh, or even catching a cold. But um, serious illness is always, we know, multifactorial. There could well be um, an effect on the immune system from... There could be an effect on the immune system from feeling very low, but it will be one factor among many. And the reason that I feel so strongly about this is not only because I've had breast cancer myself, but because my mother died when she was 38. And the very notion that someone would choose their illness mm. or not think positive enough thoughts in order to get better is repugnant to me. It is multifactorial. 
Some of it is mysterious, and some aspects of it we can, in fact, do something about. Yeah? So I think we need to, to use that lovely word, be somewhat discerning in our, how we think about our illnesses, whether our illnesses are psychological or physical. Yeah? And I think we also need to...